0: Hey, folks, welcome to another episode of There's Just Something About Kansas City, where we're in conversation about the people, places and things that make this such a great place to live. And I couldn't get any better guy in here today to talk about this and the things that he has experienced here is uh, Dr. Matthew Naylor. Call him Matt from now on. As he uh, professes, he, he would rather have us call him, which is great. Makes it more casual. Uh, and he is the president and CEO, of course, of the World War One Museum and Memorial, uh, which has been dominant. In a bunch of the last few years, with uh, with you and Union Station right across the street, with the tremendous crowds we've had and the tremendous celebrations that we've had here in Kansas City, welcome. Yeah.
1: Hey. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, Matt. Let's talk a little bit of, of, about your background. You have now been with the museum for uh, ten years, yeah. correct? You've been in the U.S. for twenty. Yep. You are a native of Australia. Yep. Is it Perth? Is your is your hometown? Grew or- up in Melbourne. Oh, you grew up in Melbourne. Yep. Okay,
1: my wife grew up in Brisbane. Okay, but, uh, we met as teenagers in Melbourne, but we certainly lived in Perth about seven years. Our three of our children were born there, and uh, but we last lived in Sydney.
0: Oh, okay. So you've lived all over all over yeah. that country. Yeah, it, it's it, that's a tremendous country. It, yeah, that's no, a great place, right? Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, they get tremendous tourism, and uh, the things are really. Yeah, Australia is just one of those places. You see the. What is it? The um, is a Sydney Harbour. That's right. And you, you see that shot all the time. Yeah. There's so much more to that country than yeah. there is.
1: But it's as big as the continental US in landmass, but only 25 million people. Oh gosh, we're three hundred so, million. Yeah, million, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So most of those live in major cities. It's one of the most urbanized countries in the world, despite the fact that there's so much land. Uh, but then outside of those cities, then there's just tremendous amount of space. And then, of course, it's an island as well as yes. a continent. So there's a lot of beaches, a lot of coastlines. So that means you can find yourself on a beach with nobody else.
0: (laughs) You know what? That's pretty nice. In fact, (laughs) the country's surrounded by beaches, as a matter of fact. So that's uh, that's fantastic. So what was it like growing up in Australia?
1: Yeah, no, a great experience. Um, We lived in an industrial area in Melbourne near um, Monash University in Clayton. But there was just five houses down a rubber factory and next to that a – a printing factory. We used to play in the, uh, you know, get under the fence and play uh, in those places. It was uh, fairly low land, so there'd be lots of tadpoles and frogs that we'd collect. And then right <laughs> next to that was the uh, primary school, the elementary school that we attended. So I can't imagine now that there'd be a rubber factory, you know, pumping out smoke and then two doors down, literally two doors was the elementary school. Uh, and then, um, you know, so, but it was good. We um, it, it was a nice neighbourhood and uh, certainly a, a good experience. My father was an immigrant. Uh, my mother, of several generations living in Australia. And uh, so we grew up in a uh, working class family, mm-hmm. uh, lower middle class, um, had the opportunity to go to university and so forth, in in, in fact, at Monash University, and then I don't know, lots of opportunities since then.
0: Yeah, um, and your dad was an immigrant from where?
1: From the UK. He was a 10-pound okay. uh, pom. So after World War Two. Uh, Australia had a big immigration program Mm -hmm. and it particularly invited uh, Europeans to move. Australia was and continues to be a racist country. It had a white Australia policy until the late 60s that only permitted primarily people of Caucasian descent Mm -hmm. to immigrate. Uh, And uh, at that time, he had the opportunity to pay £10 and uh, then he would be sponsored by a family and uh, traveled then to Australia, where he then, after some years as a printer, uh, met my mother's brother, and then met my, well, well, who became then my mother.
0: Yes. Oh gosh, that's amazing! What a great, uh, what a great story that is. And you know, you, you wouldn't think about, I never thought about Australia from the racist standpoint. You think you're about South Africa all the yeah. time, uh, obviously over there. But I, I never thought about that. Yeah, not uncommon yeah. in the no. in
1: the age for mm-hmm. that to occur.
0: That was when it happened.
1: That, yeah. Indeed, mm-hmm. and uh, Australia has sought to make amends to that, uh, especially the treatment of Indigenous Australians. Uh, there's been, I think a really um, national focus on reconciliation and and uh, on recognition of the impact of um, of colonialism mm-hmm. and uh, and and continues to work toward being a reconciled country and really made i think fantastic strides in that respect. a yeah. deep commitment uh, you know amongst the populace and with the governments, both conservative, and progressive governments have an equal shared commitment to reconciliation with indigenous Australians, which is, you know, I think, a noble a noble cause.
0: Yeah, right. And I think you reached out to the United States at one time or another for teachers, I think, at one time, maybe in the 70s. At one time, you'd offer, you come over here for commit for five years, we'll send you back home for you know, twice a year or something. for the. I remember seeing this because I'm sitting in San Francisco at this time and I'm not getting to where I want to go in this business, okay? So I'm looking at being a police officer maybe in San Francisco, taking the civil service exam. And then I started seeing these ads for Australia. And I sort of had a wanderlust yeah. all the time. And I'm going, Australia, boy, I bet that would be really interesting. But I remember, be a teacher, come over here, you know, you get sign a contract and then, We'll send you back home a couple of times a year, but you've got to commit to us for five years. Do you, do you remember the? Uh, a lot of people from the United States immigrating yeah, over so, to? sure. Uh,
1: and, and Australia is a land of immigrants. Yes. Uh, you know, people are, are uh, moving there all the time. Um, and so uh, there's been real drive sometimes to, you know, get certain skill groups there, uh, certain, um, you know, get different balances of mm-hmm. – uh, seeking to be more open uh, to people across the world, it's a merit-based system of immigration. So skills give you more points, mm-hmm. and so they f- they f- tend to focus on skills and abilities over family for immigration. Uh, so it's a different system than mm-hmm. in the United States, uh, but it served the, the country well. You know, I think it's a uh, economically a really strong nation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a you know a robust democracy. Um, in the United States here, I choose not to participate in partisan politics, but in large measure because of my service at the National World War One Museum and Memorial, uh, I don't want to be seen to be uh, right, political, you know, political <laughs> but, I do, but I am a US citizen, and I take PTO on voting days, and I work as a poll worker, uh, and uh, that's part of my contribution to supporting the democratic process in the US. In Australia, voting is compulsory. If you don't vote, you're fined. So the oh. irony is that it's compulsory democracy. So <laughs> you have to vote that's exactly for right. somebody. yeah. Exactly.
0: That's amazing. That That's great. Plus, then you have, you know, you dove in too. I mean, you, you're a poll worker and you make sure you, you vote. You have taken, I wish we could get more of the people in this country to, instead of having 40% turnout right, right. to have. If it was compulsory and you were going to get fined, I think we'd have a lot more people yeah. at the polls. <laughs> I I love was, to, I'd th- love to see how they got that passed, however, yeah, okay? Yeah, That's the only thing, yeah. <laughs> so you've been here. When did you first start to think about the United
1: States? Sure. You know, we've always seen life as a bit of an adventure. Uh, you only get to do this thing once. And so we've um, sought to make life interesting, and we had the opportunity to be able to be in the US, whereas in the humanitarian sector and mm-hmm. lead a humanitarian organisation here. And uh, you know, we thought, let's have that experience. And so, do you remember the ice storm in 02?
0: <laughs> in <laughs> yes, February I do. of '02? Yeah.
1: So we arrived here just days before, and uh, we had the good fortune <laughs> of being uh, renting somebody's furnished home. They were in Arizona. They were. They had a the good sense. They to were be smart. Arrow, so that's yes. exactly yeah. right. So we were uh, there and then the ice storm hit and we were without power, like most people in the metropolitan area for about five days. So we were, we were thinking, yeah, okay, so we say we only get to do this thing once. Let's make it an adventure. But we weren't sure that we wanted quite this adventure. Uh, and I remember the day after that the storm hit, I went out because I thought I really need to go to the office. I need to go to work. And so it took me about 40, 45 minutes to chip away the ice around the lock of the door <laughs> and then jam, you know, you'll know, be able to get the door open because it's all, it's completely covered in ice and then chip the windshield so I could see through. So, so after like an hour of doing that, then I try to make my way uh, to, um, uh, to the office. Well, what in the world was I thinking? You know, nobody, of course, is there. Right. And, uh, and nobody's no, coming. No, and the roads hmm. are completely empty because they're covered in ice. And uh, had I, now of course I just look out the window and say, oh, forget that, I'll go back to bed. So, uh, well, now of course. You become very Americanized now. We'd now just (laughs) log in and we'd work virtually, so it wouldn't be an issue at all. But, you know, not knowing the culture, not knowing expectations uh, then. But yes, the ice storm of 02 was the defining, that's, you know, what we remember. And in the daytime, it was so cold and we had no heating, of course, in the house. And then I'd come home. Uh, I did, in fact, after a day or two, get to going to the office and so forth. But we would then go to Lowe's and just wander around trying to stay warm, go to the, uh, Home Depot and just wander around because at least they were heated.
0: <laughs> okay, so how much of a serious discussion did you have yeah. right during that period of time? You had a lot of time to yourselves well, we now. So that you're was, sitting down we, here we talking knew, to each other.
1: Yeah, we knew it was going to be cold. So we knew that this would pass. It's all, you know, it's... um. It adds um, to, to the experience and toughens you up.
0: Gosh, yeah. Well, the, this weather will toughen you up a little bit. We ha- Well, we'll put this. We have all four seasons. That's exactly right. So, you know, we have the hot summers yeah. and the cold winters right. and the beautiful spring and falls. And yep. we just sort of roll with the flow yep. at, at that time. And I yep. think it's part of the experience sure it is. of this part of the country being here sure. in mid-America. This is... This is it. Not yep. everybody can get up and go to Arizona in the winter yep. and, and then come back during yep. the summer and the other months to, to live.
1: No, and it's an attitude that you adopt, isn't it? You sure. can whine about what it's like or you can, you know, accept it. And, and uh, you know, it's not the hand you get dealt, but the how you play sure. the hand is right. Is how we, we view it.
0: And you did not come here. You've been with the museum for 10 years. That's right. Well, what did you do prior, yeah, prior so to I that? I was
1: in the humanitarian sector and i led an organization called outreach international which is now headquartered in 18th street a great organization worked in a number of developing countries in comprehensive community development really rewarding experience chose after being there nine or ten years to make a transition to the arts and cultural sector and i was fortunate that julian zagazagoitia the director at the nelson atkins museum of art um recruited me to lead external affairs there and uh, that was a fantastic experience but i was only with him for probably less than 18 months maybe about 15 months when the search firm contacted me and wanted to talk to me about leadership at the national world war one museum and memorial but you know I, I wouldn't have been able to do the work that i do now at the museum and memorial if it were not for the time that i had at the nelson atkins and remain very close to julian and uh, have uh, many colleague uh, friends uh, who I worked with at the Nelson-Atkins. It was a enormously important uh, time for me and prepared me, uh, you know, really well to better understand the museum culture. And right. then I've been now 10 years since June of this year at the National World War I Museum Memorial.
0: Yeah, and I don't think it, a lot of people in Kansas they know the Nelson-Atkins and have yeah. gone for exhibits or yeah. whatever, and they know the shuttlecocks and yep. the whole history. But I don't think they understand the impact that that, place yeah. has, that wonderful place has.
1: Yeah, it's fantastic. It's a real jewel of the city. And uh, we're very fortunate in Kansas City uh, to be in a metropolitan area, what, of two and a half million, something like that, to have the extraordinary cultural assets that we have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a, a, um, a center a key uh, part of that is the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art. And it really goes to the early part of the uh, 20th century where when the Nelson Atkins was formed, as was the National War One Museum Memorial Union Station was built, you know, other civic assets were developing, that something I, I think sort of extraordinary was happening in Kansas City, mm-hmm. that there was this sense of confidence amongst the people who lived here that they would be willing to um, uh, develop these cultural assets which have really served the city exceedingly well and um, make it a reason to stay but also a reason for people to move here uh, as well. A city of this size to have all of those uh, assets, quality sports teams, as well as lots of employment opportunities. And uh, not every city experiences that. We're really fortunate.
0: Yeah. And uh, when, uh, you know, my wife has been trying to drag me into this for like the last five years. Um, She's had this vision ever since talking to people. And every time you talk to somebody, you'll meet someone like yourself or, you know, with – you know, Carl Peterson or, yeah. you know, Tom Watson or yep. George Brett, or somebody like that on the sports side. And you ask, you could live anywhere in the world. I mean, Tom Watson won five British Open, so right. he, could, he, could live, he could live free right. in Scotland. Okay, they, they love him so much. And yet they all live here. And the one phrase they always use, there's just something about Kansas City. Yeah. And, and I think people who come here from the outside, I think, like yourself, like myself, I think we overlooked that in, or I'm, I'm sorry, we look at it and say, yeah, there really is. But people who are native of here sometimes, they have that little bit of a chip on their shoulder. I'm interested to get, you know, they think, well, St. Louis, you know, or Chicago or Dallas or, you know, Los Angeles or New York or, you know what? I think we have, we have as much to offer, more to offer a lot of times than those major cities do.
1: No, I agree with you. Um, colleagues on the east coast of the US, at least until before the pandemic, when they were every day commuting to work. Yeah, some of those colleagues, my uh, they would have two hour commutes, an hour mm-hmm. and a half, two hours, two or three modes of transport, and uh, you know one of the, and that's true of many um, uh, many cities everywhere in the world. My commute in Sydney was about an hour. Uh, I remember a friend who used to live in Chicago sent to me, Matt, the traffic here, it's just driving me nuts. I said, Lauren, you've been out of Chicago for too long. <laughs> you know, yeah, we do have peak hour, but we don't really have peak hour. No, you know, we just don't. cast back to when you lived in Chicago. Um, and so you know, we're really fortunate that with to have all of what we do here uh, easy to get around, a reasonable cost of living, uh, you know, good educational opportunities in the, in the most part. Um, still with, you know, the same sorts of issues that other mm-hmm. cities deal with, you know, the other side of the coin. Um, but, uh, you know, having a, a lot of upside makes a world of difference.
0: Yeah, it really does for here. And for you, when the World War One Museum came to you originally, yeah. uh, for me, and I've read your bio and I know your background, for you it had to be full circle. Yeah. Granddad. Sure. Dad. Right. Explain yeah. Explain that Yeah. part of
1: um, Well, first and foremost, uh, World War I is a defining narrative in the Australian story. Uh, it's, you know, the people will remember that Gallipoli, Gallipoli for sure. Australians is really significant. It's interesting that Australia chooses a loss as its defining national story. hmm Quite unlike the United States, who would
0: never. (laughs) Yeah, they just shove that out of the history book. We've never lost. That's right.
1: It'd only ever be a win. (laughs) But for the Australian story, it was so consuming for the Australians. About 40% of service aged men in Australia were shipped off to Europe to serve, and 65% casualty rate. It affected every home, in every street, in every neighborhood in the country. So it had a profound impact and, of course, fighting for the empire, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in a land that they're unfamiliar with. So, uh, you know, it's it's nation-defining and uh, from about August of 14, so just as the war began, uh, the Japanese Navy, in fact, uh, escorted Australians for the most part to Europe and, um, and for my grandfather, he was uh, British and he served for a period of time. I have some letters of his. He complains a lot about the food. Right. He didn't and like... the letters,
0: by the way, folks, are from 1917.
1: Yeah, right. So he didn't like yeah. the, um, the cleanliness of the houses, the animals that were, were uh, <laughs> seemingly too close to, the, to people's homes. And, uh, and then my father uh, served for you know, a long time in World War II um and was in reconnaissance um uh, so yeah i've got a uh, come from a legacy family of service Mm -hmm. Uh, i myself did not serve um but i'm really honored to be uh, at the u.s national museum that seeks to preserve the story of those who served in world war one and at the museum where where you know people would say to me sometimes it's sort of weird matt that uh, an Australian, you know, a, a, a ring in a you know an immigrant would be providing leadership at a national museum, mm-hmm. and uh, given the um, the focus of the museum as an international storyteller, uh, in many respects it makes sense. Why not?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, especially of how much Australia had to give yeah. at that time, and even the British Empire, and right. then eventually the United States got in as well. And the thing about the museum as well. And your father was a British Royal Tank. He was yeah. in British Royal Tank, and uh, saw they both your grandfather and your father saw horrible things. Yeah. And we just talked about the United States never really has lost a war yeah. uh, ever, according to them. But the uh, the deal is with the museum, and I think this is the most poignant thing for me, and that you that you point out to museum. There's an infamous saying: "War is hell." Right. And at the museum, I think the first thing you realize when you see the poppy field, and you realize what each poppy represents, you you just go. Um, there's a lot of honor because of the people who died for their countries, but you use the other H word, which is horror. Right. It's just honor and horror, right. and there is no there's no rah rah here. Right. This that you are showing them exactly what it was like during that right. period of time, which I think is uh, tremendous.
1: Yeah. Now Forbes, who you know, the museum opened in 1926 in its original form. That was an exhibit hall and memory hall. Right. And then in the late 80s, 90s, things went downhill, and the place was just closed. like Union Station across yeah, right. yeah, the street. Exactly. Uh-huh. Not uncommon for civic buildings. You know, right. There was lack of investment and so forth. And so the question was, what do we do? Do we knock it down? Do we re- renovate it? And the people rallied around and said, uh, let's um, uh, let's have a 18 uh, month sales tax self imposed passed by 68 percent of the voters and uh private philanthropy raised and those two together and some uh, federal and state grants raised about 110 million dollars and restored the memorial Mm -hmm. and then in its understructure built this extraordinary museum which was worthy of its collection it had been collecting since 1920 the second oldest collecting institution in the world um, and it was encyclopedic, sought to be collecting from all of the countries mm-hmm. that were involved. And uh, our forebears, those who were involved in the planning um, in those years, chose one of the foremost museum exhibit designers in the world, Ralph Applebaum Associates. So they are, more recently, they designed and the exhibits in the um, National African American Museum of, um, of Culture. Mm-hmm. It's a Smithsonian. And uh, they uh, also um, recently did the World War II galleries at the Imperial War Museum in London, the NASCAR Hall of Fame, you know, other things. And they did us. So they chose somebody who's the very best. And as you've said, they um, designed our storytelling in a chronological way, so it unpacks a complicated story and presents it in a way which is really digestible and speaks of the courage and honour of those who served and also confesses war's horror. And we've got to hold those two things in tension with each other. Mm -hmm. I think that they've done a remarkable job. And the galleries have really stood the test of time. Uh, Up until COVID, the uh, TripAdvisor would rank museums across the country in 35,000. And we were in the top 25 for many years. They don't rank them at the moment. I think during COVID, they backed off that. But that's a real honor for the people of Kansas City. This is not a project of mine. It's a project of the people of Kansas City. And so it speaks to the quality and the, you know, you'd expect to find a museum like this in DC or Mm -hmm. in London, perhaps in Paris, Sydney, perhaps, but it's here in Kansas City. And, you know, that speaks to the foresight of our forebears in the 1920s and then again in the 1990s and early 2000s. We're undertaking a, a really significant renovation at the moment in our main galleries and our lower level. And that's gonna take what is already one of the world's best museums, ensure that it retains that place mm-hmm. but really propels it. And we're very excited about what that's going be. Yeah, it
0: is us. considered the best in the entire world yeah. for World War One. Yeah. Which is I mean it's right here in Kansas City. This sometimes is what the people in Kansas City miss. Yeah. Because you can't see the forest for the trees. Yeah, right. You know, you see these places, Union Station, yeah. and all the things they've done. You at, at the World War One yeah. Museum. We talked about the Nelson Atkins. Yeah. Um just Folks, you live in a <laughs> you live in this terrific area, yeah. you know, just enjoy it, embrace it, and and visit. Yeah.
1: You know, it's important. And what's cool about this museum is that there's something in there pretty much for everyone. A lot of people come because they have an interest in military history. Right. But the storytelling that we do is much bigger than just that. You know, it was defining for the world this uh, horrendous conflict, and it was defining for the United States. Um, so what we find is that people – who have an interest in military history, they love it. Mm-hmm. And everybody else does too. For example, the other day I, I, I like to go and uh you know wander around a bit each day and there was um a woman there and uh, I I stopped her in the hall and I said, So how have you enjoyed your visit? She said it's so fantastic. I said are you from out of town? Yes I am. Incidentally about 65% of our visitors are from outside of the region. Right. People come in from other countries and from other parts of the United States. 65% do to Kansas City to see this museum. Right. And she said, yeah, we're from Nebraska. And uh, our 14-year-old son for his birthday wanted to come to this museum. Oh, wow. That's his birthday present. So we all, we're all all here, the whole family, and it is the very best thing we could have done. And I said, but how's it been for your son? She said, he's absolutely loving it. Then he came across and said, what a fabulous experience. You know, that warmed my heart. Uh, a, a, uh, when you're the parent of an adolescent, you've got two roles to be a wallet and an idiot. <laughs> and, uh, and here's...
0: I'm, I'm going to remember that. Yeah. Okay. So
1: here's a mum who who's, you know got a 14-year-old that brings its own challenges. And here they are on, on their birthday and he wants to come to a museum in that fabulous. Wow. And the family have this wonderful experience together and they're learning. That's totally cool. That story is repeated over and over and and we're really proud to be the stewards of that.
0: Yeah, I'll bet, and that's good parenting. Number one. Yeah. Number two, it's good education. Well, Wherever totally. in Nebraska he he Hi. was getting his education, Hi. his historical education, it was it was spot on. Yeah, you know, that was great that somebody one did because normally you can't tear a kid away from his screen. Yeah, at exactly that point, true. or he's in the museum the whole time trying to use his phone. Or right. Whatever. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and we just uh, a couple of months ago opened now the Bergman Family Galleries.
0: Yes, we know the is Bergmans very good. well.
1: A wonderful family. <laughs> on the lower level. Uh, and what we did there is we created a new open storage. So this is, you know, we have about three hundred and fifty thousand objects that are stored oh, in this very secure, uh, climate-controlled area of the museum. So only about six percent of the collection is is available for people to see. Uh, we wanted to create storage that was still storage, still climate-controlled, still secure, but behind glass. And so we created this area. It's about one hundred and ninety foot coastline as it were like Mm -hmm. a shop front and uh, four shelves so that's about 800 linear feet and then brought about 1550 objects out from storage and just have a whole lot of stuff so it doesn't have labels it's just lots of stuff
0: from that period of time and from that war
1: exactly all beautifully um, lit it's fantastic so um, uh, audiences or guests are really enjoying going to this area, as well as of course the, all the other galleries, but this open storage, they'll see things that they won't, would never otherwise see mm-hmm. in any museum ever. Uh, and then it's very cool. Then we also um, uh, renovated a learning center and a research center on that area. Then the Ellis Gallery is the final piece there. Uh, at the moment we have this wonderful installation and they are letters between a serviceman, his name's Walter, and his mum and dad. And his dad is, a, is an illustrator professionally. So every envelope his dad illustrated with something related to what his son Walter was doing. Mm-hmm. And so we have about 50 of these letters and envelopes on the wall framed Absolutely fabulous. So fun. One of the letters, Walter asks his father to stop drawing, illustrating the envelopes because his <laughs> mail is being stolen uh, because the other servicemen love so much what his dad is, is doing. It's a very cool thing. So that's been in our archive for years. We bring it out, then people are able to see a very intimate and personal part of the story of the war. You know, the war is about people. Oh, yeah. It's about per- people who serve their, their stories. And so... Us being able to bring, you know, more objects out is fabulous. Well, in just uh, – in that um, particular um, collection of objects in open storage in the Fa- Bergman Family Gallery, for me the most moving piece is a small piece of fabric about 12 inches by 12 inches where a mum has embroidered a blue star. So the blue star is in the middle of that, and so that's in, uh, that indicates that her son was injured mm-hmm. in service – and then she has embroidered over the top of that with gold thread because he died. He died. Yeah. And it's that's a really intimate, personal piece that, you know, we will keep and preserve forever. Oh, yeah. It tells the one person's story of millions who experience that. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And, you know, the... The, the thing that you brought up before about the countries, this blew me away when I read it, 116 countries yeah. were involved in World War I. 116 right. different countries right. were involved in World War I, so, which
1: just blows your mind. It is. It's phenomenal, isn't it? So every inhabited continent of the globe was pulled into the war and because of the empires. Mm-hmm. Now, if it was in today's terms, it would be the equivalent of 116 countries. Yeah. It's sort of hard to wrap your head around, it isn't is. it? Yeah. yeah and of really. course at a, at a scale of conflict which the world had never previously experienced
0: right how um, how often do you do you change so you have the artifacts yeah. back in, in your safe secure room and then the other yep. behind the glass how often do you bring things yeah. out and change sure. things up a little bit some of the things you probably can't change because like the um, like the trenches yep. and the tanks yeah. and everything else that you have down there
1: So we've got two um, changing galleries, Wiley Gallery and Exhibit Hall. And so about every six months to nine months, we have different installations in those areas. So in Exhibit Hall at the moment, to coincide with the NFL draft, we have an exhibition called Entertaining the Troops. Uh, You know, as you said earlier, it said that uh, war is months of sheer boredom interrupted by moments of utter terror. Yeah. And so what... What did they do to keep the troops entertained? And so this exhibit talks about that with all primary source, all objects of the museums. And then in the Wiley Gallery, we have an exhibition called Bespoke Bodies, and it's about the development of prostheses, right. prosthetics, artificial, you know, uh, noses, eyes, hands, legs, feet, so forth, um, from World War I through till today. So about every six to nine months, in our main galleries, that's our permanent installation that just tells the story um, in a chronological way. Right. We, um, we occasionally change objects in that area. But what we're currently doing over the next two years is a major um, multi-multi-million dollar improvement to those main galleries where we are introducing a lot of new interactives um, where the, you mentioned the trenches um, the trenches are uh, one of those defining uh, things about World War I. In fact, it's true of the Russia-Ukraine war as mm-hmm. well. Right the now, Trenches yeah. uh, are, are similarly being used. Uh, we're completely rebuilding the trenches so that people get more access to them, able to see them better, uh, introducing new elements in the, in the exhibition, Uh, that I think is going to be extraordinary. So about every six months, so this uh, September and October were the first rollout of changes, and then thereafter about every six months through till 2026 where at the end of that refresh project, Mm -hmm. we're going to be opening a permanent installation memory hall that tells the story of the museum and memorial. People ask this question of us all the time, why is this here? Exactly. And so we want to be able to tell the Kansas City story uh, of why the museum memorial is there, um, how it was built, who built it, yeah, who built, funded it, right? Yeah. Who funded it? Eighty-three thousand households. That's right. Uh, you know what the um, what some of the characters who were in the area, what they did in in service, and what their lives were afterwards, and then place it in the larger context. You know, there were ten thousand memorials thereabouts established in the U.S. Lots of um, memorials across the globe were established, but at the scale of what you find here in Kansas City. For this to be a local initiative essentially is without parallel. Right. For it to be a a memorial of scale with such architectural significance and then a world-class museum, one of the world's best, that it's a local initiative, it's firstly unusual in the United States, but in other countries it's unheard of because they're federally or, or the state initiates those. That's not the case here. We want to tell that story as well. That's a, that's a Kansas City story. Um, and so we want to be able to... So we're excited about these upgrades that we'll be doing. It'll make what's already a great museum. It'll ensure that the people of Kansas City, when their friends come to town in five years' time... Their first stop, they'll want to go to the National World War One Museum and Memorial.
0: Yeah, I, I don't want to say this, but geez, that sort of lines up with a soccer certain soccer <laughs> term is <gonna> <laughs> That's right, and of Just course, at the same time, <laughs>
1: it is. And it's our one hundredth year since the <laughs> yeah, museum was, uh, since the memorial was right. dedicated in nineteen twenty six by President Calvin Coolidge, and then of course, it's the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the United States. Yes. So there's fabulous alignment. World Cup, we'll be able to also tell the story of the Christmas Truce of nineteen fourteen, where they played play soccer. soccer. Mm-hmm. And then we'll uh, be celebrating the commitment of the people of Kansas City in establishing the memorial and their commitment to veterans. And then, of course, the United States' 250th birthday.
0: Right. Here's the biggest question I get asked. And if you think about it, okay, you go up there and you see the memorial and and everybody that has never been here will go up and walk up and say, well, is that it? I said, no. The museum's down there. How why did it yeah. end up underneath the mo- – like normally you would think it would be like a big building, right. almost like yeah. the Union Station yeah. sitting out there or a museum sitting yeah. out there, a giant edifice yes. of some kind. What What was the thinking behind underground right underneath the memorial? Yeah.
1: The memorial is registered with the National Trust. Right. So it's a it's a heritage site, uh, all the glory of the name, no money. But that means that <laughs> there are constraints on what we're able to do. Um there are, and we, the constraints are pretty significant. Um, so, therefore, we couldn't do anything on the courtyard or on the memorial itself. Okay. Um, so, but there was space underneath, and so that's what the idea of then –
0: You couldn't have built out onto, the, onto the, um, uh, the promenade. Could have you built out
1: Possibly so. South. So, for example, on the southwest side, right. maybe build something down there. Uh, I think that the part of the idea was that when they had, you know, the foundation of the tower was um, compromised. And so when they were excavating, uh, then said, well, it seems to us that there's an opportunity to establish a museum. So I just think it made sense to do that. And also it's a little bit like a bunker. You know, going in the bronze doors is something like almost going into a trench of right. sorts. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a bit of a parallel. Um, we, um, we, what, what the, An upside of the location of the museum is that it doesn't impede the viewshed at all. And, you know, even the placement of signs has been an issue through the years um, because it interrupts the viewshed, you know, the mm-hmm. signs that says um, that it's, uh, you know, for parking and so forth. So we're always having to be sensitive to that. But at the same time, letting people know that there's this world-class museum and, uh, you know, come in, come on in. So signage, we work hard to draw people to that place.
0: Yeah, right. It's very uh, it's very unassuming. I think yeah. now the tower is yeah. you know, magnificent. Sure. But the museum, you go, it's very unassuming right. at that point. And I think that ends up getting the point across about honor and horror. Yeah, right. So you're going – we're bringing right. you – it's almost like we're bringing you downstairs yeah. to yeah. show you yeah. exactly right. what this was, was like.
1: And you mentioned the, uh, the poppy field. As you go through the mm. bronze doors, you uh, then – to proceed into the main galleries, you cross a glass bridge, the Sunderland – Paul Sunderland uh, glass bridge, under which there are 9,000 poppy blooms, each representing a 1,000 combatant deaths. So it's beautiful. And it's horrific at the same time. Yeah, it
0: is. When you think about what they represent. That's right. Yeah.
1: And then, of course, the skylight, and you can look up and see the memorial. And we all know that at nighttime, it's lit so beautifully, uh, you know, so it's just, you know, most spectacular. And the most iconic views of Kansas City typically are taken from the memorial courtyard.
0: Yeah. So you've been here now in the United States for 20 years. You are a United States citizen, yep. obviously. You've been the curator here and the president and CEO. And I'll call you curator because it is love that you do this for. You have, a, you know, your background with your grandfather and your father, I think, you no know, means a lot to you. How much longer do you think you'd like to continue on yeah. being the uh, president and CEO? Yeah. Of the World War? I'm sure. sure other people pull at you a little yeah. bit. You're getting pulled.
1: You know, um, we had we were fortunate that we, well, I shouldn't say for the last numbers of years uh, from the period of uh, 2014 to 2019 was the 100th anniversary of the war. Um, During that time, I worked with the board and the staff to say, who are we after the commemorative period? Right. And we developed what we call now our three big ideas, which then they were adopted by the board in 2019. And then thank goodness that we had them, they guided us during the COVID period. And now they give us a real clarity about our future. They uh, absolutely drive me. And I feel absolutely committed to those. Uh, I feel we have as much enthusiasm and a sense of importance in our role now uh, even more than we had during the commemoration where there's this natural focus around 100 years. Right. So that, that really energizes me. Um, So I feel very committed to the mission of the Museum and Memorial and to its future. Um, You know, uh, the the future is very bright. Our work is very important. uh, And so I'm, you know, excited to stay as long as as I can. You know, one of the truths of working for a board, which I have pretty much most of my career, is that um, you want to make sure that you leave... When they still love you <laughs> and at the time of your own choosing, because both of those things are going to change. yeah right. But I'm fortunate that we have a wonderful board, and we're very much aligned in uh, the staff and myself and the board are very much aligned with what our what we see is the um, our strategic focus, the importance of our mission. um so, I'm excited to have no other plans than to remain.
0: Yeah, okay. Well, that is that is very good news. Yeah, you don't want to have the brown envelope dropped on your desk. That's right. Uh, you want to read that over and <laughs> take it or leave it. You know just you know what I mean? We love you, but we'll that's see right. you. Don't let the door get shut <laughs> right. on the way out the door. That's the last thing you want to do. And, and I think the people in Kansas City should understand that this was way back in 1918. Let's do something. Sure. Let's do something before – was even – That's right. It was just a baby dream. Yeah. Uh The people of Kansas City said 20 – how many thousands so of households? In,
1: so yeah. the business leaders came together just after the armistice in 18. So it's in the latter part of 18. And then uh, a fundraising campaign in 19, right. 83,000 people contributed to Contrib- that. So this arguably, is just normal
0: citizens contributed. That's right. Yes. So
1: arguably that's – Eighty-three thousand households. There's only two hundred and fifty thousand people in the city
0: at See, the time, yeah. so yeah. maybe
1: it's maybe there's you know the surrounding areas, but that's that's huge, and then um, a lot of enthusiasm about the idea that they would create a mm-hmm. um, a memorial to honour the war dead, and then to also create a tribute for peace. Remember, in those days, it was sort of thought, well, you know, this is it's over, it's, it's over. That's right, right. and um, and then the five Allied commanders. So that's from uh, Belgium, France, Italy the United Kingdom, and the U.S., uh, those five came together with Vice President Coolidge in 21, and they dedicated the land. About 100,000 people came out. So, you know, it's a bigger show in town. People come out. They're very enthusiastic about this. And then a uh, a national competition for architects uh, selected, and then this um, fantastic edifice was built. And then in 26, about 150,000 people came out, and President Coolidge was here then to dedicate the memorial. Um, and there are people who will tell me about they they were here as a, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're very old now, or their mother or father were here as children uh, during the dedication in right. 26.
0: Right. And, and then the other thing is when it started deteriorating, yeah. instead of just letting it go— right. Um, and I think there's something else that people here should be extremely proud of. Us. So letting it go, just like Union Station, they routed around it. Right. They said, how can we fund it? We do not want to let this, uh, let this go, uh, leave yeah. our culture here in right. Kansas City. So they turned around and did it again.
1: That's right. And then renovated and built this. And then, you know, more than that, we are the gathering place of Kansas City, a 47 acres park there. And then when something happens, that's where <laughs> we go. You sure. When, you know, for protests as well as for celebrations, for family uh, picnics, for, uh, you know, for school photographs, for mm-hmm. wedding photographs, or show-off to school your friends. visits. Exactly right. Mm-hmm. So at that time also there were improvements made to the grounds. The trees were cleared out. There was lighting put in. So now it's a tremendously secure place and that at all hours of the night there are people there on the grounds and there's people there in the courtyard. And when there's important, you know, events in people's lives, they they go there and uh, participate in, you know, whatever they're doing. It's it, You know, the other day I came out of the – maybe last year I came out of my office going to my car and there was an older woman running the stairs. Lots of people exercising. Yes. So when I was really.
0: there that day, I was over there for 810 and yeah. you were, uh, you know, gearing up for yeah. a, a, a a big event. Um, yeah, I so saw lots of people yeah. running the stairs. So she
1: was. She tells me she's 84. She's oh. training for a marathon in Hawaii. And I thought that is fantastic. We're so glad to use be us, that you're use us any here. Way you want. Indeed, <laughs> fabulous. So people use the grounds for all sorts of things, and we absolutely welcome
0: that. Right, and is It is their grounds. That's exactly that it's right. This really is, their is the people's park, and their heritage. Yeah, it is. Absolutely. You know,
1: we're the Central Park of Kansas City, and that's the, a great the, the, way to look at Kansas City's front porch. Uh, we want people using these grounds, and and people come and protest on these grounds mm-hmm. as well. It's a free speech place, and our view is we don't we don't decide who protests. Um, you're welcome to come and protest. Now you need to uh, you need to complete a form yeah, right. so that we can make sure that <laughs> you know we're uh, that things are all sweet. But we don't decide who and why, because we believe that the values for which our forebears fought in World War One are to support. Liberty, democracy, freedom, and that means that people are going to be protesting, are going to be expressing, you know, their points of view, are going to be arguing right. the case. And so what better place to do that than on the grounds of the museum and memorial?
0: Right. And, you know, I have all my, <clears throat> you know, mean, still mean streak friends back on the East Coast. Since so it's because of you, where you live. That's why you're so mean all the time. And uh, during the, uh, the uh, draft, yeah. especially, yeah. sometimes with the parades – <clears throat> people from other parts of the country just going okay fine a parade we'll just cool. go whatever but when it came to the draft yeah. everybody in the world uh excuse me was was watching the yeah. draft and um they just came back to me and said I can't believe the way you change the colors for the unit for the teams that were right. being drafted and you in the in the in the um the, the, the tower was lit and, and then poppies. What were the poppies? And I said, oh, that's a World War One museum. And yeah. they represent, you know, every poppy there represents a thousand, uh, a thousand people yeah. who died during World War One. They said, God, that place just, I said, Hey, it's just something about Kansas city. guys. Yeah. I've been telling you for years. Yeah. What so, a, what a <clears>
1: wonderful <throat> moment that was for Kansas city. Oh, it was. And we were honored to be one of the host sites and that, uh, you know, 90% of the activities were on the grounds and that then, as each of those um, picks were made, that the cameras would turn around, and as you say, the logos would be on either side of the freeze, not right. on the freeze itself. And then the and then the colours on the freeze, and then the, and then in the evenings uh, we did the uh, uh, horizons um, poppy installation on right. the tower, just really quite fabulous for Kansas City, and um, you know for the work of the museum, it was significant because. There were millions, millions upon millions of people watching, and we're the only we're the only city in the world um, that has a museum like this, and right. in the United States, absolutely the only one. And so, there will be a draw for people downstream. There'll be a long tail that comes from yes, the draft of people- because they'll want
0: to go stand. Where yes. this happened and say, I, totally, I remember our first one. Exactly he, it right. he was right there, yeah. Where you know, nah. the big facade in front of Union Station yeah. and then the backdrop with the, exactly with the Roman right. one. Nah, fantastic. Yeah, it was it was unbelievable. So I guess you get along with George Bustelo. Okay, yeah, you know. all our neighbors.
1: <laughs> you bet we're thrilled we have the Fed on one side and then we've got That's the right. RS and then we've got Crown Centre <clears> and our friends there and then, of course, Union Station. And so we all, you know, we all um, share in different ways with mm-hmm. each other and uh, all get along very well. And of course, we're excited about the streetcar coming up the hill. Yes. Someone asked me the other day, "So, what's the impact of the streetcar you know, extending from Union Station?" I said, "Well, the biggest impact is I'm going to see when people come from the streetcar, they won't be going <laughs> <laughs> having just walked walking up the, up hill. the hill. Yeah, and they'll be able to get off at Memorial <laughs> Drive and just come
0: right right around." Yeah, <clears throat> that was fantastic. I can't thank you enough for coming in and sharing this experience. I was. I'm blown away by the museum, always have been. Uh, took my father-in-law in there. He was in tears. Um, great place. Yeah,
1: well, it's you know it's a, one of those important gems of the city, and it's mm-hmm. the people's place. It's their museum. It Our grounds are the, are the people's. We're just stewards of that, but we right. take it seriously, and we think that we have an important international role to play. Um, uh, you know, on the great freeze, uh, the, our forebears carved this mm-hmm. fabulous uh, bas relief and these words above it say in part that um, let us create a, ju- a just and lasting peace amongst ourselves and all nations. And uh, it, it, I think the memorial um, honours those who serve but also points towards a, a, um, a period of peace mm-hmm. and of equity and a prosperous future uh, amongst ourselves and uh, for everybody. And we take that seriously. Uh, we hope that we can help people be able to um, uh, be a part of that sort of work by visiting the museum and the memorial and enjoying the grounds, bringing their friends. Yeah, yeah,
0: definitely visit. Yeah, yeah. Matt Naylor, really appreciate hey, the president. CEO of World War I Museum and Memorial. Just a fantastic tribute to not just you and the people who work with you, but all the people in Kansas City all who right. make sure we preserve these, yep. these wonderful places because there's just something about Kansas City. Yeah, fabulous. Thanks, Don.